and welcome to the AAP Practice Life Podcast. Today, we are discussing animal welfare issues as it relates to our equine friends. Tonight, I am joined by three members of the Equine Abuse and Neglect Subcommittee, part of the AAP Welfare and Public Policy Advisory Council. Uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Clara Mason, Dr. Lisa Kivett, and Dr. Alina Vale. Thank you all. Before we get started, just love to hear a bit about your practices. So, Clara, tell us a bit about yourself and your practice. Hi, Mike. Um, I am located in central West Virginia. We border Lexington and Ohio. I have an ambulatory equine practice. I've been in West Virginia uh, since 1993. Our practice focuses primarily on saddlebreds and quarter horses. But we uh, we see endurance horses. We see a couple thoroughbreds. Our practice is very diverse. As far as my position with the AAP, I'm on the welfare committee uh, representing the AAP to the AVMA. And then this is my fifth year with that position. And then I am also on the welfare and policies committee there at the AAP. And um, my primary focus is on equine abuse and the prosecution uh, once we get the cases, helping the veterinarians get it through the legal system. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, we'll come back to uh, your roles on the committee in a little bit. Lisa, Lisa Kivett, and down in Southern Pines, North Carolina, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am owner-operator of a two-doctor general equine practice here in Southern Pines, I'm a 2007 graduate of North Carolina State University, and I'm boarded in internal medicine, though I primarily focus on general care at this point. And, you know, I think some of my experience in this abuse or mostly neglect area comes from the fact that I live and my practice operates out of one of the wealthiest counties in North Carolina but we are surrounded on almost all sides by the poorest counties in North Carolina. So I'm in a unique little area where uh, we do see, unfortunately, um, just outside of our practice, a lot of uh, neglect situations. Interesting, interesting. We'll get back to that as well. And uh, finally, Dr. Alina Zell in uh, San Diego. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. I am an independent contractor or freelancer, so I consult for a biotech company trying to enter the equine veterinary space, but then I also do some equine welfare work on the side, such as drug testing and thoroughbred quarter horse racehorses, and also for the U.S. Polo Association. A few years ago, I received my master's degree in veterinary forensic medicine, and that encouraged me to participate in the AAP Welfare and Public Policy Advisory Council, and I'm the chair of the new equine abuse and neglect subcommittee. Thank you all very much for joining us this evening. Quick question is, how did you get involved or why did you want to get involved in this AAP committee? So let's start with you, Claire. Well, unfortunately, and, you know, here, even though I, as Lisa, live in a wealthy county, the wealthiest county in West Virginia, I am surrounded, unfortunately, by poorer counties. And equine abuse, unfortunately, is rampant. And, of course, when the economy took a turn for the worse, it made it much harder for some of the folks in this area to maintain their horses. Fortunately, the state of West Virginia has some of the best animal welfare laws in the country. 
unfortunately, the legal system cannot keep up with instruction on how to navigate the waters with this. So I gently started taking on cases. And then from that, um, I was tapped years ago to help with some of the, the smaller committees with the AAP. And then from that, I just started with the uh, Welfare Committee, and I'm very happy to do so. And how about yourself, Lisa? Sure. So my path here was a little bit accidental. I sort of stumbled along the way and ended up here. I, being technical large animal emergency rescue certified, fell in with a group of sort of like-minded friends in the area, and we found ourselves rehabilitating a particularly tragic starvation case several years ago. Uh, the horse was actually surrendered by a client of mine um, that had been turned into animal control. Long story short, we had the resources and the ability to rehabilitate the horse, including using an Anderson sling. And uh, that case got a lot of publicity uh, locally and even beyond locally. From there, uh, we raised some money to rehabilitate this horse had extra money, founded a rescue, and ended up taking in several more cases. And so I sort of ended up doing more of this than I had planned. So when the AAEP needed a speaker on sort of abuse and neglect for the recent focus meeting, being as the geographical location was convenient for me, I was asked to give that talk. And based on my participation in the focus meeting, um, I was asked to be on the subcommittee. And finally, Alina, how did you uh, find yourself on the committee and, and chair of the committee? Well, I was appointed to the, the larger Welfare and Public Policy Advisory Council a few years ago because of my interest in endurance horse welfare, which was a hot topic in the international scene and a sport that I grew up in and very passionate about. And then my interest in forensics actually stemmed from my grandfather, who was a forensic dentist. So when I found out about the veterinary forensics, I became interested in that. And that led to chairing this abuse and neglect subcommittee. So tell us a bit about uh, just for other AP members and, and just even for myself, what, you know, what is the mandate of the committee? and What are you focused on? I guess I can go with you, Alina, on that. So in February, the AAP Welfare and Public Policy Council had a strategic planning session, and we met and discussed the top equine welfare issues that we would be able to address and help our members with and help the general equine industry. And equine abuse and neglect was one of those top four equine welfare issues, and so I was assigned to be the chair of the committee, develop a working group, and then address member needs. And so one of those was to help members navigate these potential abuse and neglect situations that they see in their community. So what are the, the main pressing issues? I know you both talked, uh, well, Lisa and Clara talked about, you know, local issues, but in, you know, local, but also national, international, what are the big issues uh, and equine abuse and neglect issues. Let's start with you, Claire. Well, um, in general, I think that the um, some of the problems with the closure of, of the slaughterhouses and the plants, we're still seeing um, horses with no alternative means after they've been, um, you know, relegated to 
a sale, let's say, and they have nowhere to go and nobody wants them, sometimes they're injured. Um, of course, with some of the issues, getting these horses into Canada now has posed a problem and a lot of them have to travel to Mexico. On a different note, those that are facing euthanasia clinics, which as I understand, and I don't know that this has started as of yet, it'll start next year, some of the euthanasia funding that was allocated from the um, a different horse committees uh, is being cut. So the euthanasia clinics are not gonna be as prominent as they have been in the past. I think the American Horse Council has redirected some of that money. In the meantime, we're facing challenges with the disposal of large carcasses in the soil. This is a problem not only in the United States where we're getting contamination of our water sources, but it's even a bigger problem in third world countries where the carcasses are not buried or they're not incinerated. And sometimes there is other animals, there are other animals that will consume the carcass before it's disposed of. And that in turn is, is posing a problem for those animals. So it, it's multifaceted and sometimes it's just a trickle down effect because the animal no longer has a reliable home and ends up in, in different areas. Lisa, one of the things you said I found really interesting, and one of the things I want to get into, we could spend a little bit of time, and just in terms of, you know, as a veterinarian, we see neglect cases, abuse cases. Um, it, it, it's tough on us. It's, it's hard enough to be a veterinarian, period, dealing with only semi-sick animals and have to deal with, you know, horses that are severely neglected or abused. So tell us a little bit about what you, you mentioned. You know, you're in one of the wealthiest counties in North Carolina, the Good Southern Pines. It's a great horse area. You know, lots of well-cared-for horses, but around the peripheries of that is some neglect, it, it seems like you were talking about. How does that affect you? Uh, yeah, it, it can be a little bit of a challenge to, you know, spend your morning treating a Grand Prix dressage horse who sneezed a little funny yesterday and then find yourself in the afternoon standing in a herd of horses that are barely being fed, you know, much less receiving proper care. I mean, I think in a way it's a good thing um, for those of us who have different aspects of our practice like that, rather than, you know, consistently dealing with the emotional fatigue that could come from seeing only low income type horses or uneducated clients or the kind of uh, cloistered reality of only treating upper level sport horses. So I prefer to look at it as a little bit of a a good thing for sort of keeping me grounded. Um, but, you know, it, it, it can present a challenge and it presents a bigger challenge for my staff, honestly, trying to understand or trying to help them understand the differences that we deal with from group to group and, and the different approaches that are necessary and, and the different things we might offer to those clients. That's, that's a, much, a much bigger challenge. Yeah, I wouldn't mind if we could spend a few minutes on that because when I knew we were going to be recording this, I know my first thought was, you know, as a practice owner and, you know, and when I was practicing uh, full time, I, you know, we had neglect cases and it's hard. It's not hard, just, just hard on the vets, but it's hard on the support staff, people in the office, even when they hear about it. 
I mean, how, uh, I'll throw this question out to the three of you. Uh, uh, how how do you deal with that? How how do you insulate yourself from it? What resources are out there to help veterinarians and their staff when they see neglect cases? We as a subcommittee did create an online toolkit of resources to help veterinarians address equine abuse and neglect. It's kind of hidden in the AAP website, but it's aaep.org slash owner hyphen guidelines slash equine hyphen welfare. So if you can write that down or search for it on the AAP website, we've got lots of resources, including PowerPoint presentations for how veterinarians should go about addressing these cases, a PowerPoint presentation for law enforcement. So you could offer to present to your local law enforcement or animal control officers. And then we also have lots of links so that you can find out about the state laws to know if you are a mandated reporter for abuse and neglect, and also who you should contact if you identify it. And then also laws um, that would provide you with immunity when you do report a case. So we've got lots of resources for you. We also have a mentor program and the contact information is available on that website so that members of our subcommittee can help you in your practice when you're going through these cases because it is very emotional and some of the vets that we've worked with, um, they feel very alone, they feel helpless and are very frustrated and so we are here to support you. Thank you, that's really helpful. And uh, Claire, I think you were going to say something or give your suggestions. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, we have seen thousands or been involved in thousands of abuse cases. I, we tried to figure it out one day and in the 26 years here, it's been between three and 4,000. And again, oh, it's, yeah, it's a lot. And, and I literally go to court about once a month for an abuse case. And in the last two weeks, we've had nine horses involved in three separate cases. And that's just in the last two weeks. And it, it will get worse as the weather changes and it gets colder. Um, we find that there's a trend toward that. But back to the staff and the mental fatigue. I have a small staff, but they're very dedicated. And I have to say that, and they've been with me for years, that we, I never really thought about the mental fatigue until the last few years. And when we had really big cases, I have to say that my staff stepped up. I mean, we had one abuse case that was 58 horses and 54 survived. And after it was all said and done, we, you know, would just sit down and talk and say, you know, how do you guys feel about this? And I mean, to the credit of my staff, and it's not that they're, you know, extraordinary, although they are in my, in my world, they all said the same thing. The fact that the animal was out of the deplorable condition and that we did our due diligence and we did our case right made the difference. And I think that there is some sort of reward when we go back and do our rechecks and we can physically see the improvement in their body condition scores and that the animals are relaxed and they're no longer fighting for food and water and that they're comfortable eating out of their own feed buckets. So there, there is a reward with it. And um, it, it takes a special group of 
people to deal with this. Now, I will tell you in the summer when we have our summer interns, they're, they have a much harder time with this. And, you know, we're, we're just open with dialogue and say, you know, if you need to talk to somebody, let us know. But so far, they've managed. Well, I'd actually like to ask Dr. Mason kind of a follow-up question on that because I've been fortunate enough not to deal with that number of Mm -hmm. neglect cases nor need to go to court nearly that many times. So I think one of my biggest challenges is when I am called to a farm by an owner, usually a new client, we arrive, assess the situation, maybe give some vaccines, whatever we're doing, but just have that feeling that all is not well and start to see maybe over time the conditions deteriorating. But the conditions are not bad enough to warrant a call to animal control because, you know, certainly if at least in our area, if animal control goes out and sees food and water, nothing will be done about it. And so it's it's tough for me to communicate to the staff that we have to strike a balance between just never going back to that farm, never returning the phone calls and leaving this situation unobserved versus continuing to go there despite a moral opposition to the situation that's going on and and a feeling of having our hands tied because we can't yet report it. And we end up stuck in limbo and everyone's unhappy and it takes a real toll on the staff because nothing's happening either way. And I'm curious to know how you would potentially deal with that. Well, you know, that's a really curious question because one of those cases that we had two weeks ago was almost exactly the same scenario. For two years, we've had complaints where my clients live on the same road as where these four horses were seized. And one of the horse had chronic uveitis, had lost one eye and was completely blind in the other eye. And the eye that was um, gone had not been completely debulked, of course, because it had no vet care. And so there was a persistent infection in the eye socket. So not only were there medical reasons to seize these horses, but the horses were starved. The <clears throat> One of the dilemmas that we ran into is that the, the Humane Society in this particular county, albeit they have good funding and they recognize dog abuse, they're not very good with the horse avenue. And every time our clinic would get a phone call, we would redirect them to the shelter and said, you have to go through proper channels, call them first, and then they'll call us out. So what was happening is, is that just as you said, the horses were starved, people felt sorry for them because they're wealthier Uh, clients on that road and they were throwing their own hay over the fence and giving them water. So when the shelter would show up, then, you know, the horses looked like they were fed, however they were thin. And the fact that we had this one medical condition warranted a phone call from me because I was driving down the road and saw the horses myself. And I called the shelter and I said, you have to do something. I don't care if there is food and water out there. This horse needs medical attention. And then when they got out there and physically put their hands on the horses and realized, you know what, they really are thin and they were standing in mud and there wasn't a good source 
of potable water. They were actually toting the water out from the house and putting it in the water trough. Well, you know, who knows how much the horses were going to drink that day because it depended on how much hay was thrown over the fence by the neighbors. So it poses a real challenge, but you have to find that one avenue, which is, is there a medical condition that would warrant them to be seen? Or is their body condition score suboptimal? Whether they have food or not, they may not be feeding adequately. That's the way that we've been able to take on some of those challenges. It sounds like you have an animal control agency near you that's perhaps a little bit more proactive with horses than some of us are dealing with. Yes and no. I mean, trust me, we've had a lot of the shelters who they'll just, you know, shrug their shoulders and say, well, even if we took the horses, where are we going to put them? Yeah. And that's when we, we already have, you know, a lot of rescue groups in the area and we go ahead and set up with them and simply say, look, you know, here's your resource. They'll take the horses. You need to get the ball going. And I will say that starting it was three years ago, we started training. There are a lot of counties in this state, and we started training each county and having the humane officers, the sheriff's department, because there are they're not shelters in every county in West Virginia. So then the burden falls on the sheriff's department. And, you know, come on, these guys don't know what, you know, they look out into a pasture and they think, well, it's green. They can eat it, but they don't realize that it's weeds. And they don't realize what a thin horse is. So slowly but surely, we're trying to educate um, the law enforcement. It's been a challenge. And we get phone calls, you know, in the middle of the night sometimes. And, you know, they'll say, well, you gave us thermometers and you told us to take the temperature, but I can't remember where do I put the thermometer, you know, and you have to answer the question and thank them you know, for, for waking you up because, you know, obviously they're listening, you know, and it's just one step at a time. Clara, that's interesting. You you started that you mentioned the training that you've done. Can you, can you sort of flesh that out? Cause I'm sure a lot of people in different areas would, you know, would want to know, well, how can I teach my people around me? Because I know in my neck of the woods, the, 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 the local enforcement, law enforcement wouldn't know, uh, you know, a thin horse from a fit horse. Um, so how do you go about that training? Well, we've done it two ways. We were very fortunate that we have a local rescue group who wants to get involved. And to to start this, let me start with the AVMA advocates education first. And we use that as our mantra, you know, because a lot of these folks, that end up losing their horses, the first thing they say in court is, you want my horse. Like, no, I don't. My husband and I have plenty. We don't want your horse. You know, and it's that mentality that they haven't done anything wrong. So a lot of times we start with, you know, we educate in court and we say, listen, we we really made every attempt to educate these folks on how to feed their horses. We'll have a dialogue with them before the horses are seized. And, you know, often, and I've said this before in some of the articles that I've written, if you have a dialogue with the horse owner, they often will tell you what you need to hear, whether it was this intentional or did they just not know better. 
So from that, we branched out to the law enforcement because we found that they had sort of the same mentality. They didn't know what a thin horse looked like. So many times we'll join up with the local rescue groups and we will send out invitations to the local shelters or the sheriff's department. And I have to tell you, at first, no one wanted to attend. I mean, we literally would send out 100 invitations. We'd have like four people. And then we kept seeing the same four people. So then we started offering um, food. We There's a uh, accreditation that really doesn't, it doesn't mean anything, but they actually get a diploma from us or a certificate that simply says that they attended this workshop and they received six hours on um, animal welfare um, or neglect abuse training. I forgot how we worded it. And there became sort of this um, pride with this. And like I said, we we donated thermometers. Um, we made up cards that showed a thin horse. I mean, a picture is worth a thousand words. And we attached the body condition scores with these. I mean, we literally gave out the practice. Our, my practice paid for it. We gave out gift bags that were just filled with everything that they needed, weight tapes, our card, you know, and simply said, if you run into a problem, call the office. Even if it's the middle of the night, we'll help you. And I think from there, it just became, I mean, the last one we did this past summer in August, I think we had a hundred and, I'm not sure about this, it was either 92 or 102 attendees. But nonetheless, I mean, that's remarkable. And some came from Kentucky and Ohio as well. Wow. That's amazing. And how are how are you getting the word out about these events, or or who are you contacting in in order to sort of let people well, know this is available? We contacted the sheriff's departments in each of the counties, and um, we started with that. We started with the Farm Bureau um, because a lot of people will attend the Farm Bureau meetings. We called the shelters directly. We used every source of um, social media, Facebook, you know, and if you know how Facebook goes, if you just say, hey, we're looking to recruit, you know, somebody knows somebody who knows somebody, and we were getting phone calls. So um, social media is a wonderful thing sometimes. Thankfully, one of the groups that we're associated with, Heart of Phoenix, the rescue group, they have advertising down to I mean, they, they could write a book on it. They make little videos, and they've just figured out a way to intrigue law enforcement as well as shelter workers to come. And I think I, I would have to double-check on this, but two years ago, I think a couple of the shelters offered incentives to some of their workers to attend. Now, I don't think they were monetary incentives, but I think like they would get a day off with pay if they attended our seminars. I'm telling you, we've had in the few years that we've started this, I am shocked at the amount of folks that have attended these. And and a lot of them are repeat. And it's funny because now, I mean, I often talk about dentistry on these because, you know, everybody knows that the mouth is sort of the black hole of the horse. I mean, a lot of people 
don't realize that even though they're feeding their horse and they're not gaining weight, you know, could be because there's attrition with the teeth or, you know, other dental issues. So, you know, we, we bring a, a skull with teeth and we show them our dental equipment and, you know, we go through that and it cracks me up now because after a talk, somebody will come up and they'll say, Hey, Dr. Mason, I looked in this horse's mouth and it had O6 hooks and I'm laughing. <laughs> thinking, this cracks me up. Where did you, you know? And they said, I listened. And I'm like, you sure did. So we're making a difference little by little horse by horse. That is excellent. Uh, Alina, when you and I were talking before others joined the call, you had uh, talked about some international work that you have done. When you look at what you've seen internationally, is there a difference internationally from the kind of neglect or abuse that you see in North America, or is just abuse is abuse no matter where you are? Well, I think it, it varies in the different locations and different disciplines and the, the type of use of the horses, such as working equids in developing countries do have some different issues um, than, say, sport horses. But uh, equine abuse and neglect, it, it, is, it is prevalent um, everywhere that horses are used. I would say there's, there's good and bad horse owners, good and bad riders, good and bad trainers everywhere. Um, there are other countries that are maybe doing more research into it. Um, so that's something that I think we can definitely improve in the United States. So there are some programs that people can get involved with if they if they love or are passionate about equine welfare. There's the American College of Animal Welfare. Um, there's different AVMA events to get involved with. I just attended the Animal Welfare Judging Assessment Contest. And so there's, I think, a lot of room for improvement for equine welfare in the U.S. So I have one last question, uh, and that is, you know, we've talked about, you know, the poor neighborhoods or, you know, some of the, the, the more common ways we would think about neglect or abuse. But I think in the show horse, it's sort of one of those things we never like to talk about. But, boy, there seems to be some abuse and neglect in, in those areas. And I don't know if any either of you have any kind of tips or any suggestions that you can talk to any of the listeners that if they see the neglect or abuse amongst, you know, quote, unquote, established trainers or, you know, um, any suggestions or thoughts on that? This was one of the other top four equine welfare issues that our Welfare and Public Policy Advisory Council did address earlier this year as being a priority issue. So there is another subcommittee looking at the abuse in sport horses. And so we're anxious to, to see what comes out of that group. But I would give a, the advice that um, if there is a equestrian discipline or a breed registry that you're involved with, to join a vet or equine welfare committee, part of that organization, and, and get your concerns out there. You can write articles for the horse-owning public and, and let them know what your concerns are. So there, there are ways to get involved, and I highly recommend it. I feel that the show horse uh, neglect abuse is the bigger challenge in my world. I can navigate around the neglect and abuse because someone is not taking care of their animal. But the other is my, uh, it, it is the biggest challenge that I face. For instance, the one thing that I brought up in the meeting in February that Alina's referring to 
is that the saddlebred world, the horse goes forward and it's all about the big movement, the big presence coming around the show ring. And one of the things that they do is they put the trainers or someone associated with the horse puts ophthalmic atropine in the eyes in order to create um, almost a, a, a blindness to the horse going around the ring so that the horse has to rely on the rider and it has this big a face coming around the ring, which is what the judges are looking for. Now, you know, the atropine wears off. It is ophthalmic. It is veterinary use. But this is a misuse of the drug. Everyone knows that it's going on, and yet no one says anything. They just accept it. And I I don't know that I could make an issue out of this, but I feel sorry for the horse. I mean, the horse is walking around for eight hours or so, not able to you know, navigate the stall door and everything else. So for me, in my small show world, some of these trainer tricks are my biggest problem. Is the horse well cared for? Absolutely. But then they get into the show ring. It's that egregious use of product on the horse that should not should not occur. So I don't know. For me, that's the bigger challenge because who do you report this to? And if you do report it, you know, you run into this ethical dilemma. Is everyone going to shun you? Because when you walk in the barn, they feel that you're going to be looking for, you know, every little, yeah. So I don't know. Yes, yeah, so you're damn if you do, damn if you don't. It's a tough situation. Exactly. Very tough. Yeah. We've, we've covered a lot of ground this evening. Let me ask you the next question. Somebody's listening in and they've been inspired by our discussions tonight, and I don't doubt they would be. What would be the first step for a, a, a veterinarian out there that says, hey, you know what? There's things I can do in my community both horse welfare, abuse, and neglect issues. What would you recommend they do? Please visit our online toolkit that our subcommittee has put together. Uh, I'll give you that address one more time aaep.org slash owner hyphen guidelines slash equine hyphen welfare. Excellent. And at the A this hopefully this uh podcast will hit the air before the AAP convention in San Francisco. Is there anything uh are there any topics, any presentations, any committee discussions with the your committee that people should know about? Do you want to Put in a shout out for your Monday afternoon session that you're on the panel. I was just getting ready to say that Terry Werner is the moderator for a panel of eight of us. The meeting is Monday at 1.30 until 5, I believe, and it's challenges of ethical dilemmas within practice. And it will cover everything from the Me Too movement to being the veterinarian on showgrounds where you're seeing some egregious use of drugs to navigating everything in between that has ethical issues attached to it. So I think this is our one time where we're going to be able to express all of these problems that, you know, we talk about often, but have no resource for. Well, hey, I'm doing a table topic Monday afternoon when I recommend anybody go to this ethics panel instead. Before we wrap it up, I'd like to just ask, 
um, Dr. Vale, exactly how do people go about getting in touch for this mentorship situation? Because I think a lot of people don't know. I mean, you don't know that, you know, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and go see that new client and it's going to be a disaster. And, you know, I think people don't know they need help until they need it. And so how do people get the mentorship? So to be put in touch with one of our subcommittee members to act as a mentor for you, you'll contact Sally Baker at the AAEP and her email is sbaker at aaep.org or you can call 859-233-0147 and this information is online on that webpage but we would love to help you out when you're stuck in a situation dealing with these cases. Wonderful. Thank you. Excellent. I'd like to thank you all very much um, taking time out of your busy days. And um, I know everybody's getting busy to get to the AP. I just think uh, hats off to you. I mean, really, this is, this is a tough part of the profession. We all know it. We, as veterinarians, we see these cases, but you, the three of you are immersed in it. And the, this can't be easy, but thank you very much. Appreciate your, your time tonight. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you.